This episode of Where to Begin With will feature heavy spoilers of the movie Les Diboliques from 1955. If you've never seen the movie before and you want to take part in this series by submitting an e-review, then I would suggest you hit pause right now. Go away, check the movie out, get your thoughts together and send an e-review. If you have seen the movie before, or you just don't care, then just listen on. Don't say you weren't warned. Diabolique. Un costume d'homme. Diabolique. Une malle en osier. Diabolique. Une piscine. Qui l'a enfoncé sous l'eau And welcome back to another episode of Where To Begin With. This is season number three, episode number nine. This is the penultimate of my reviews. So, the second to last episode proper in the season. However, you guys and girls out there get to review episode number 10's movie on what will be the introductory episode of season number so just keep that in mind when our final episode of this season drops next month. But yeah, we are swinging our way into episode number 9 of season 3, a season that's been looking exclusively at film noir and neo-noir through cinema. On this one, I've kind of crossed the, the state lines, so to speak, and picked a movie that exists both in the world of film noir, but more self-assuredly and full-footedly in the realm of horror. Now, the reason I've done that is because over on my main show, the podcast Under the Stairs, I've been doing a little thing called Movie Club. Movie Club has ran for about four years now and it's finally coming to a close 
in a mere week's time. The reason it's coming to a close is this show kinda does what Movie Club does exclusively as its own thing and it's come time to consolidate them into just one single show that people can interact with. This show affords me more opportunity to blur the lines of genre, but on last month's Movie Club, I was a little bit cheeky. And what I did was I picked a movie that was a horror that had noirish elements to give people a little taste of what we do over here. And in return on this episode, we're reversing it around and picking a noir movie that has horror elements. Les Diboliques is the movie we are picking for this one. The absolute titan of the genre. One of the more influential movies of that decade and beyond. Now on this episode, we will be doing a spoiler-free review of that movie. If there can be such a thing for a movie that is now almost 70 years old. On the flip side of that, you will be um, hearing yourself and hopefully your colleagues and their reviews for the previous movie that we covered on Where To Begin With, which was Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Those will be coming up at the end of the episode and then you'll find out what my final pick, and this is, I was going to say unorthodox, is one that's going to make me very happy. I'm going to be super curious to see what you guys make of it because we ain't going traditional, but we are going probably the height of what people would class as the the kind of film noir genre as we know it nowadays uh, by the blurring of lines of science fiction and the genre itself. So that's where we're heading for our final episode. I wonder if you can guess what the movie is. Anyway, let's talk Les Diboliques. This movie here, absolute classic. As the, the title may suggest, not an English movie. This is a French movie directed by Henri-Georges Clouds. He um, did this movie way, 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 way back in 55 in black and white at the height of what would be considered the Hitchcockian thriller. And this one definitely, definitely pushed some boundaries. A lot of movies, or a lot of critics, that have written books that are really interesting, you know, they like to cycle back and say, Psycho is the defining moment in horror. And everything before that, was, oh, it's like monsters and creatures and and weird stuff. And I think they forget that there was just, like, really interesting movies that didn't pitch themselves as horror. And the reason I think that is, before 1960, the idea of horror movies were reserved to creatures and aliens and other weird things that go bump in the night. And we never at any point sat there and thought, you know what? Humans are evil. And I don't know why we didn't, because we'd come out of two particularly nasty world wars that you would have just thought we would have aimed that way. But no, 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 no. And then with a movie like Night of the Hunter, which was covered on podcasts under the stairs last month, and specifically Les Diboliques, I I am surprised that Psycho is the movie that people are, this is the one right here. Because whilst this movie is definitely a bit baggy, um, it does very fully grasp the idea. In some ways, like Fritz Lang's um, M, actually, kind of does the same idea. It really goes down to the vicious things that people do, a kind of twisty people plot that ultimately will end in murder. Um, And the case of this one is based on the novel by Pierre Boulou, 
um, and uh, Thomas Narja. And the, the actual adaptation here, including the dialogue, was done by the director himself. He was behind the adaptation of this. The movie stars Simone uh, Signore, uh, Vera Klulitz, and uh, Paul Mersu. And there are some other people in here, but that's your main throng of characters here. The synopsis for this movie is listed on IMDb as the wife and mistress of a loathed school principal plan to murder him with what they believe is the perfect alibi. This movie has maybe one of the most iconic endings in, in horror history. Um, I think it's I think it's safe to say that. Although I still think there's a chance you may have went through your entire life never having seen this ending. It's kind of one of those ones where it's been it's been copied and copied and copied and and variations and variants of it all the way from pretty much this point and <laughs> um, ultimately uh, you might not have tracked it back to this just because you might not be aware of the movie. For the seasoned hardcore cinephiles this is one that's in the lexicon, this is one that you know. Um, it's kind of reference in film noir is the mystery element around it and it's, it's use of kind of tone and atmosphere and building sense of confusion and dread. Um, as the as the the great trivia weaves said, like Alfred Hitchcock apparently wanted this. He was going to do his adaptation, and you know it didn't happen. And as a result, as he almost retort to this movie, he made Psycho. Psycho ultimately became the bigger of the two movies, and like I say, the one that's become more influential in the genre but I could see I don't actually know in 55 if Hitchcock would have made a movie like this that delivered what this movie does I actually almost feel like you had to go through that period of of a bit of uncertainty and and almost be beaten down in order to make a movie like Psycho as aggressive as Psycho is I don't think he has that in him at, you know, in 55, although, granted, things were were kind of heading that way anyway. Um, in the case of this one, what you have is just, like, a, a very taut, very, very clever, um, almost musicless movie. I mean, there's a bit of music that plays kind of, like, over the beginning here in the credits, and then it is a, a movie that like bears witness to very deliberate pace, uh, a very clever sound design, and an almost like an excruciating setup. I absolutely adore the ending, which is kind of where the the entire movie is built on working backwards. And you don't work your way into the you know the the Criterion collection without being a bit smart and a, a bit heady. The strength of Le Diabolique is not only its incredible ending, but is the setup behind it. It's the mania that's afforded through the characters, and that's in the excellent casting and delivery. It's a movie that is predicated on on dialogue that's believable. If you don't believe it, it ain't happening. And on some level, we as the audience are predisposed to know that these plots of scheming and murder are never going to work out the way that you want to. But in 55, I don't know if audiences were that clued in, that clever and that aware. Um, 
rather what you get is a, a, a surprisingly original movie of the time and it does it, it lives and dies on your belief of thinking you are one step ahead very much like our kind of antagonists slash protagonists depends how you take a look at this one here our school teacher isn't exactly a nice guy um, and there might be part of you that's actually rooting for this evil deed to be done and then as it kind of unfolds the way it does maybe thinking actually they got what they deserved and that kind of flip-flopping back and forth surprising twisty turny delivery is not easy to do without losing the audience one turn too much and the audiences are not in one turn too less and it doesn't have the impact that it does it's it's on a kind of hair trigger in order to deliver what it needs to in order to keep the audience on their toes it's actually an exercise in misdirection overall um leading the audience and uh, the kind of central characters in the belief that something has happened and a way that has happened in the repercussions of said action before whipping the rug from under their feet at the end now we talked about Hitchcock earlier on he lost out on this one and then followed up by buying essentially the, the another book by the same author uh, which would become Vertigo so I mean his loss on that one gave us Vertigo a movie which let's be honest once again is considered a seminal entry in the the kind of the thriller genre one of the more popular Hitchcock movies which would not exist in a world where Hitchcock himself had acquired the rights to this particular story it's interesting how history works out because had he done that no vertigo and like I said before he may not have made it in the way that you get it here on top of that um our director here um of Lady Blake, he had previously done The Wages of Fear, which is a movie which at the time was considered, you know, just like next level thriller, almost kind of out Hitchcock, Hitchcock, which, you know, creates this really interesting battle of, of directors where you have a kind of, <laughs> a kind of almost one, two, um, of, well, oh, you're doing that, well, I can do this. As effect as well, the Lady Bleak effect, you know, moving into Hitchcock creating Vertigo also creates a system where we go to that next level, like I say in Psycho, and Hitchcock himself flexes even further than maybe he would have before, and in a, in a great way lands something which is, is, is incredible and changes the genre again. So you've got to think in some level that the history bears out in a particular way for a particular reason and no one movie makes or breaks a, a, a filmmaker's career it, it's just not done that way um, ultimately what is designed and meant to happen actually happens and whilst Hitchcock remains firmly rooted in the genre that almost to this day bears his name we talk about thrillers as a descriptive term as being Hitchcockian uh, Clouseau didn't uh, you know, he he moved on and did other things after this and never really returned to the genre in any way great uh, kind of great fashion or form 
it's almost as if there was no interest and that's not what he was about and he kind of follows the beat of his own drum. Lastly, I think the, the most important point on this one is that I think this movie still holds up. I think, like I said before, if you're coming to it now, you're probably going to see a lot of things that you've seen in other movies and that's fine, but even removing yourself from the had I been there at that time and experienced this, I just think this movie's a masterclass in storytelling. It's so confident and deliberate in its own pace that it never rushes to any one thing. And at almost two hours in length, I think you will struggle to find many filmmakers so confident in their storytelling ability and so confident that audiences will go along with this story for as long as they will. And this movie had a great showing at the time. Like I say, it's blotted out by by kind of Hitchcock's like one-two punch of Vertigo and Psycho in terms of attracting attention back. And it's also foreign, which, you know, maybe doesn't endear itself even though the movie was successful in, uh, in kind of English-speaking countries like America and the UK. Um, I, you know, like, people are going to go back to that. But, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's greatly used, those techniques throughout. I just think there are very few filmmakers that could make a movie like this. Today we talk about, like, the, the, the kind of the big auteurs creating cinema that's a slow burn. And here's a guy who, without concept or idea of what slow burn is because it's just not a concept back then just creates this very top very interesting very twisty turny um and wholly wholly surprising thriller that delivers an ending that has been copied replicated and scarred scarred an entire generation it's quite remarkable it really really is so yeah what I need from you guys is your opinions on this movie. I'll be quite interested to see if anyone hasn't seen this before. This one is kind of like on the list of the greatest movies ever made. So yeah, I think I think um, chances are you probably have all seen it in one way, shape or form or maybe one of the many remakes or retellings of the story. So yeah, we'll see how you guys get on. I will give you details of when you can submit your reviews when I need them in by. You've got slightly less time than you would usually get just because December is busy and the doors to the Teapots Collective and podcasts under the stairs close on Christmas Eve and we ain't putting out anything beyond that. So, ladies and gents, let's uh, let's turn our attention round, shall we? And let's get into the nitty gritty. Let's do the stuff that I know for a fact you guys are here to hear, which is what you all made of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, the previous movie that I covered. Now, we have tons in this time, so I'm really excited about this one. Uh, we have a review from Catherine Mazer, who is uh, who wanted to actually submit a review for the previous one, didn't quite meet the timeline for it, so has instead submitted an e-review here for, for you guys um, right now. So let's do this, shall we? Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, released the same year as Brick, shares the same density of clever dialogue moulded into a noir puzzle box, but without the same complete imitation of Raymond Chandler's narrative language. These films were a bit of a second wave of indie noir after the burst of a renaissance in the genre in the early 90s with Lost Highway, Pulp Fiction, Red Rock West and True Romance. Amen, Catherine, amen! These emerged after a similar amount of fallow time between the 80s era noir and the budgets like Body Heat and Blowout, both released in 81. 
Of course, all are built on the bedrock of the original modern noir retelling, Chinatown, which was released in 74. While Dashiell Hammett claims the birth of the genre as much as Chandler, it was Chandler who grounded the darkness and mystery of noir in Los Angeles. He reflected the seedy grit of real murder like the Black Dahlia in the insomniac threads followed by his private detective, Philip Marlowe. Although certainly dark and seedy, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is decidedly more funny, punchy and tongue-in-cheek than most of its counterparts, having more in common with Get Shorty than it does with the heaviness of Brick. All noir requires a healthy dose of cynical humour threaded through it, but this would surely be on the lighter side of that spectrum. It maintains the Chandler tradition of the fractured backdrop of the Tinseltown Los Angeles hosting the murder of vulnerable young women, which draws out the cynical private detective. However, in this case, we have the equally vulnerable, quite hapless and pre-Iron Man Robert Downey Jr. as Harry Lockhart. This is quite funny as Robert Downey Jr. is honestly a true child of Hollywood being the son of Putney Swoop director Robert Downey Sr. and himself was kind of a sacrificial lamb to the entertainment machine in the tabloid news of his spiralling addiction. This culminated in his break-in of a Malibu home where he passed out on a child's bed. This is parodied in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, with the news clips bringing Harmony's fame after she is burst in on by Protocop, a washed up actor who breaks into her flat during a bender. In Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Harry is grafted onto the more traditional PI character of Perry, or Gay Perry, as they kind of operate as a divided unit in this archetype. Harry Perry also happens to be a long-standing Los Angeles figure on Venice Beach who rollerblades around in a turban playing psychedelic music. The plot is fast and furious and very tightly written but, to its credit, never crosses onto being the hyper-fast. Harry is a thief mistaken for an actor who is sent to LA to do screen testing crosses paths with a childhood crush from his hometown of Indiana Harmony in Los Angeles. They meet at a party hosted by the villain Harlan Dexter. Gay Perry is also at the party and sent to engage Harry for detective training by his producer who wants him to prep for the role. The fateful night of training is a ruse carried out by Gay Perry on the Greenhorn Harry to take all the fall for Dexter. Harmony's sister then dies the same night and is, is confused for Harmony whilst holding on all out on a high identification. The three worlds collide in a triangle. Harry becomes embroiled first as a patsy and then as a partner to Perry and Harmony in the unravelling of the murder of Dexter's daughter Veronica Dexter. Harlan Dexter was, he bit, was in a bitter war with his daughter and over her mother's fortune. This in, is inextricably connected to the mysterious death of Harmony's sister, whom she had convinced was the daughter of the passing actor through their Indiana town, Johnny? None other than the same Dexter at battle with his actual daughter. The little sister came to Hollywood to find her real father to cope with the disappointment of her father who raised her being her molester. 
Harmony is dangled in front of the audience as the femme fatale, but this is quickly turned on its head as she turns out to be the female version of our classic gumshoe P.I. We're tempted by ongoing innuendos of our potential double crossings of Harry, but these ultimately resolve into either being comedy or bonding. Ultimately, the P.I. role is subverted, both by splitting into three characters, Harry, Perry and Harmony, and by turning the typical detached masculinity of the archetype on its head. The disconnected, gruff cynicism of Philip Marlowe becomes in thirds. A hapless thief who abhors the violation of women, a proudly gay fixer, and Nancy Drew styled woman over 30. In the end, where noir is generally tragic, this trio instead solves a mystery and remains the best of friends. A surely unusually sunny outcome lighting up those dense shadows of noir. It mirrors Chinatown's narrative of incest rather than murder being the big reveal in the narrative hinge, which unfortunately falls a little bit flat in that it's laid out conceptually in the beginning of the film. The bait and switch of thinking that the little sister is the fake Veronica Dexter who was murdered for involvement isn't quite as compelling and tense as it feels like it should be. It's shown that it was, in fact, a third woman, a Veronica Dexter lookalike, who was having sex with Dexter. When witnessed by the little sister, she killed herself, thinking that her real father was also a molester, the same as the father who raised her. Whilst this ties up the narratively, the narrative tidily, there is excessive complexity in all these Veronica Dexters hanging around. Having three of these with no actual femme fatale feels flabby and fails to maintain emotional tension. While clever, it's also kind of a forced reference to Chinatown. There's some more moral punishment of the true molesting father of the little sister, who is now an old and female man, but this kind of feels tacked on. As the shaming is done by Gay Perry with some slaps, it does feel like an opportunity to demonstrably correct the misinterpretations of homosexuality, identity and with paedophilia. There is a whole fabric of intention about exploring gay representation with Perry, whilst this would require several more viewings and a lot more research to understand. It's really a sweet film, with tight, punchy writing that doesn't fall over itself too far with its excessively fast pacing. Lots of gags, like the ongoing grammar jokes, are both cringy and charming. I'm pretty sure at the time there was a whole moment where I could not staying what in the plumper fricked hill and thinking of the monkey from the future who could only see ficus. I miss the time before Iron Man and Val Kilmer is just a gem forever. Whilst not truly hard-boiled, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is a tightly written and very fun take on the noir genre. It's wonderfully playful and ultimately quite kind to its jaded Los Angeles types. And I just want to say that included in this review was a picture of Harry Perry, someone I have seen a picture of before but did not know anything about. Uh, I just want to thank 
uh, Catherine for that review. That was absolutely brilliant. And where have you been hiding? And I look forward to more reviews uh, from you incoming in the future. That was that was an absolute delight to read. Um, but let's get to the traditional folks here. Let's bring in our buddy Tim Walker. We know where Tim stands. He doesn't like the comedies. He's not going to like this movie, Duncan, because he didn't like the comedies. So let's see if that bears out here. Hmm. Dear Duncan and Teapots Collective People, well, this time we're covering the big-budget Hollywood action noir film Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, starring Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer. Well, Duncan, you thought I would hate this one, and you're wrong. I still don't like it, though. This is just really, really not a movie for me. Mostly, I'd say it's a dialogue. Shane Black's dialogue just doesn't work for me. It's not as bad as the dialogue in Killing of a Sacred Deer. Those people sounded like aliens, barely, e barely even pretending to talk like humans, but I still don't like it. Strangely, I still like that movie. This one is way too meta. Too Hollywood, too clever for its own good. For every line I liked, there was an immediate one that made me want to jam something sharp in my ears. The acting is fine across the board. The story is perfectly okay, it's just not my thing. There was plenty of action, but I wanted more death and danger. I never really felt like the two leads were ever in any sense of danger. Again, it's too Hollywood. Plus, I've seen a crap ton of these kinds of action films in the 80s and 90s when I was a kid. Not my thing anymore. To be fair, it probably didn't help that I saw this right before Halloween, when I was even more into horror than I normally am. And I watch horror a lot all year round. I've got to watch the movie when I can because my schedule is all over the place lately. Sorry, Duncan, but I don't think I would have been a big fan of this one regardless. The buddy cop action thing is just not for me, not since the early to mid-90s, and I'd say before I even got into horror. Big time. I can see why other people like it, though. The amount of four and a half to five-star reviews on Letterboxd is staggering. Jesus, what is this movie? The Godfather? I'm going to give it two stars out of five. It's not bad, and I don't hate it. It's just not for me. Next up is the French suspense thriller Les Diboliques, which I have seen before and I've been meaning to watch again, and we'll see how it holds up. But until then, I say to my Teapots Collective people, take care, stay safe, and always keep a tiny gun in your pants. Take it from one who knows. And thanks very much to that review in from Tim Walker. I had a suspicion, I thought I knew it, but I still picked it anyway. Because that's what I do, that's what I do. And it makes me happy to do it because that's what I I, th I think I've already said that if I hadn't before it's what I do um, right let's continue on shall we we have more reviews to get to and I know that you guys out there want to hear them so let's move into our final review this one comes in from our good buddy David Garrett Jr. David says hello Duncan and T puts collective listeners David Garrett Jr. here once again for where to begin with film noir and neo-noir films as the one that was selected is as I said last time one that I feel like I might have heard the title, but didn't realize what it was, as I would have been graduated high school in 2005 when this came out, which is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. 
So Robert Downey Jr. was an actor that I knew, just wasn't necessarily familiar with him around this time. And I mean, it probably would have been thanks to Iron Man that I went back and saw more of the things from that he's done. And I actually kind of realized it was like back to school, I think was the one that I couldn't think of last time when I was recording. So what's also interesting here is that by the time this came out, I did like Val Kilmer. Now, Shane Black was also a name that I wouldn't come to recognize until later, as I believe he was in, like, the Predator film and kind of did a lot of different stuff after that that would kind of lean more into action, as it's kind of interesting that I've never seen any of the Elite the Weapon films, and I think that's what he's most known for, or, like, some of his more popular stuff. So, this is kind of an interesting one to check out, finally. For this one, we are getting voiceover narration from Harry Lockhart, who is Downey. Now, he was a petty thief that fled to Hollywood when he ends up in an audition to avoid capture from the police. Now that he's out in L.A., he's trying to fit in, but it's not working out. He was brought there by Dabney Shaw, who is Larry Miller, who I'm a fan of him, just his dry humor and just how much of a jerk he can be. So Harry spends a majority of his time, though, with Gay Perry, portrayed by Kilmer, as well as Harmony Faith Lane, portrayed by Michelle Monaghan. Now, there's an interesting connection with her. Harry gets mixed up with a murder, and then Harmony's younger sister dies. It is just like detective stories that he and her used to read. Now, they might be more connected than they realize as they navigate this deadly underworld, and I love that they is like these novels that they like from this certain author where there'll be two what seems unrelated cases that come together. So this is an interesting neo-noir film. We get the classic roles. We have, you know, Gay Perry as a private investigator who works with Dabney. He keeps him and those that work for him clean. Now, Harmony is a struggling actor who comes off as our femme fatale. What I like there is that Harry is a criminal who plays a PI just to get close to Harmony. We also get thugs like you'd see back in the day with Mr. Frying Pan, portrayed by Dash Miok, and Mr. Fire, who is portrayed by Rockman Dunbar. This plays well with Harry and Harmony not knowing who they can trust. What makes this work even more is Black's ability to make this feel like a modern film noir. It is snappy with its dialogue. Downey, Kilmer, and Monaghan play so well off each other. They fire back and forth, and that makes me laugh. The mystery was good, too. Downey breaks the fourth wall, but there were things that I picked up on before he even mentioned them. Now, I'm not always the biggest fan of this, as it works well here, though. I'd even go as far to say like something like Deadpool might not work if we don't have a movie like this ahead of it. But I know he does that in the comics as well, but I'm not going to delve too much into that other movie. So the cast here is great. Not everyone is well known, but we get good character actors here. Aside from those that I've mentioned, I'll also give credit to Corbin Burnson and Miller. There's also Shannon Sassaman and even a young Ariel Winter. This is a movie that I'm glad I could tick off my list as I don't know if I would have ever have watched this as I did enjoy my time. It's a good mystery that has good dialogue and characters for sure. It feels like this could be even flirting with it being unbelievable. At the same time, sometimes real life can be crazier than fiction. So I can, you know, roll with that. And I mean, even Harry acknowledges that on top of it. So Duncan, I'm glad that you selected this here because I, like I said, might have never watched this one. So my rating here for Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is going to be a 4 out of 5 on the T-Put scale. And I'm also quite excited that you selected Les Dabaliks as the next one, as this one I know is also considered to be a horror movie, and it's been on my list for some time, so definitely glad to finally get that one knocked out as it's going to be another first-time watch for me. Don't think there's anything else I need to say here outside of can't wait to hear the episode and everybody else's thoughts on Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. This is David Garrett Jr., and I am signing off. And a big thanks to David Garrett Jr. for submitting in his review. Well, there you go. 
that is us. Uh, all that's left for us to do is tell uh, you guys out there where we're going next for our final movie of the series and at the same time bring it home with uh, with the, the time that you can submit in your review for Le Dibalique. Now, we are working on a tight timescale here so you have a mere what, three weeks, if that. So, reviews for Le Dibalique need to be in for Monday the 12th of December. Monday the 12th of December, the episode will be dropping on um, it'll be Sunday the 18th so reviews in for Monday the 12th reviews dropping Sunday the 18th for Le Dibalique and the final movie well it's uh, you're either going to love it or you're going to hate it because people either love it or hate it um, this one here to me is the epitome of the kind of how we can take something and just fuck with it and change it up we are going to be looking at Blade Runner. Blade Runner from 1982. The iconic, and that feels like an understatement, science fiction neo-noir movie. Um, now it's up to you. You can choose whatever cut you want. I'm not going to be militant on this one. You choose whatever cut you want and that's what you bring to your review. I myself have not decided what cut I'm going to review. Uh, but yeah, just keep it in mind. You've got plenty of time. If you want to view more than one cut in the movie for your review, please do. This next episode will be the final one of the season. I will review Blade Runner and then I will put out for you to review the movie itself. It will be incorporated into the debut episode of season number four, which will be dropping end of January. So you have a good amount of time and I'm giving you a heads up right now. So you've got plenty of time. You've got about two months to watch the movie. So go away, have fun with it and uh, get your review written up well in advance of what we're doing here. So yeah, Blade Runner will be your next movie. It is coming to you on the 18th of December, which is when you will hear your reviews of Le Dibalique. So uh, until then, please have fun, watch movies, get get yourself in that kind of weird neo-noir, film noir, crossover Christmas mood. And um, I look forward to speaking to you the next time on Where to Begin With. This is Duncan McLeish, your host, saying bye everyone. <laughs>